0: This is episode nine of the Investors Podcast.
1: Broadcasting
2: from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing
1: strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broederson.
0: Good morning, everybody. This is Preston Pish, And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Brodersen. And so today we're going to be doing a book on Charles Koch, who is the CEO of Koch Industries. And just so you know, Koch's net worth, his personal net worth is $43 billion. So uh, Charles Koch has done pretty well for himself. And the book that he wrote is called The Science of Success. This book was something that Stig and I thoroughly enjoyed. It's not too terribly uh, long. It's about a normal sized length book. Uh, but the content inside this book is just fantastic. And I think that you can really tell that Charles wrote this himself or that he, he contributed a lot to the uh, actual content in this book because um, you can tell he's a very uh, educated and scholarly person as you're kind of going through it because some of his points are just really quite impressive, to be quite honest with you. So, uh, what Stig and I are going to do is we're going to highlight, as we usually do, the high points of the book, and then at the very end, we'll talk about what we didn't like about the book, and uh, we'll quickly push through this so you guys can really capture the essence of what it is that made Charles Koch such a success in business. So, before we do that, I want to do a quick shout out to uh, our audience. So, we've been Stig and I've been receiving a lot of messages from people in the audience, and some are good, some are bad, but. Either way, we appreciate your comments because you're giving us information that we need in order to make the show better for you. And that's really what we want to do. So, people like Alex Shea, uh, he sent us a message about the sound quality. So, we're working on that. And hopefully, you're seeing a difference on this uh, episode. Uh, We got a message from uh, Jesse Hayback about the media player not properly working on the site. So, Jesse, we got a programmer working on that. And you should see that fixed on the site soon. Mark Andrew, your comments and uh, motivation on YouTube and all the other places, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I get the biggest smile every day whenever I see your your comments. So I just wanted to throw a shout out to a few people in our audience and just let you know that we really appreciate what you're doing for us. So let's jump right to the book. Uh, The very first highlight that I have for the book was discuss this idea of change adaptation. This was something that was prevalent throughout the entire book. And what he means by change adaptation is that Charles Koch is a firm believer that you have to be, as a a leader and as an executive, as an owner of the business, you have to be prepared for your business to change course and move with the markets. Okay? And I think that that's something that I think a lot of people might not get because a lot of people want the checklist. A lot of people want to say, if I do steps one through 10, I'm going to be successful. And- What we found in this book was that Koch continually told the reader that if you're implementing my uh, steps, which he has five main points for his uh, decision-making process. He says, if you're implementing these steps like a checklist, you're probably not doing it correctly. And I know that that's a little hard for people maybe to grasp, but I think his point is this. You have to be fluid. You have to be able to understand what is it that your customer ultimately wants And what are you doing to improve that value to that customer and to society continually? So if you make a product for the very first time, and let's say that the product is a new chewing gum, how can you continue to improve that chewing gum for your audience and for your customer base over time as maybe a new competitor comes out with something new? Because what he finds is that a lot of businesses, they make the product or they make the service once, they don't adapt to changing market conditions, and they just continue to sell it, continue to sell it. Their margins continually go down over time, and then the the business fizzles out and, and disappears like everything else. And so his this idea, this change adaptation, being pliable, being willing to change, is the thing that I'd say was the number one point in the book that Stig and I both took away. So uh, Stig's going to go ahead and hit you with the uh, second point that he had as far as the highlight for the book.
3: Yeah, if there's just uh, one thing that I can pick back off, it's it's the thing you said about uh, a checklist because um, he has this, these principles that we'll talk about later and it might seem like you're saying, Preston, that we have like 10 points and you need to have a check mark out of each one of them. Um, but the way he actually sees this change adaptation is really a way of thinking, a business philosophy, if you want, a way to approach things. Nothing that was actually really, really strong. So, I also think it might be quite hard when you read this and just thinking, well, I should just do these five things, but it's actually just your mindset or not just your mindset, but you have to change your mindset to actually do the same thing as Charles Koch has been so successful uh, doing so far. So another takeaway I really liked was the concept of opportunity cost that Charles Koch is talking about. And the way that he presents that is that he's saying there's a set of law that governs humans' behavior. And one key element is that we as humans tend to look back in time instead of looking forward. And he provides this brilliant example in his early years in Coke Industries where he was evaluating the inventory. And uh, he wanted to get rid of this inventory because it was just piling up. And what he was told was that they could not sell off the inventory because if they did that, it would incur as a loss on on the income statement. And he actually, you know, Charles Cook he thought found that ridiculous because he wanted to look forward in time. You know, the uh, the cost to the inventory, that was sunk cost. He was looking at the inventory. He thought that you could use the inventory better elsewhere. But it's this human behavior that was really the problem that if you think that you incur a loss, you tend to make the wrong decisions. But I actually have a I think I have a good example of this. Because if people buy a stock and that stock tends to lose value. Even if people realize they probably made the wrong stock pick, there's a good chance they will still hold on to that stock because they feel that they will not really have incurred a loss before they sell the stock. So what's happening is that they don't look at opportunity costs. They don't look at saying, I can actually apply this, uh, these funds better than another stock. They're just solely looking at this stock or this inventory and thinking, do I make a profit or not? You
0: know, Stig, it's it's funny because a lot of people think that because they don't make a decision, they're not making a decision. But in this case, what's kind of interesting is when you decide to not move out of that position, let's say you invested in in stock X and it went down by 10% and you don't want to sell it to move into the other opportunity, which you think is much more promising because you don't want to take a loss. And so you decide not to do anything. That lack of a decision is actually a choice that unconsciously or consciously you just made in that you chose to continue to have maybe a, uh, an investment that will maybe persist at no gain or even decrease more instead of moving it in into something that you felt was more promising that was going to grow at 10%. And I know that's a very hard concept for a lot of people to take. And to be honest with you, this was my favorite point in the whole book was this discussion of opportunity costs when he was talking about this inventory. Because It really kind of hit home to me, and uh, I think it applies probably most to a lot of investors that have that situation where they have a loss on their uh, on their account for a particular pick, and they could take that loss and move it into something else that is definitely more promising, and they refuse to do it because they don't want to take a loss. And uh, you know, it was very interesting to see how Charles Koch, you know, this billionaire, thinks about that particular situation, and he was just like sell it take the loss put it into the into the better opportunity cuz all you can do is act at time now and look forward like stig said so uh really great point in the book i really liked it So uh, the last thing that we're going to highlight in the book is we're going to go through Charles' five points to what he refers to as market-based management. And that's what he refers to throughout the entire book is he says that um, he has a process that he uses for buying new businesses, for all of his decision-making process, and that is called market-based management, or MBM is how he refers to it. And there's five steps to MBM. Okay, And so his first step is vision. So for vision, he wants to know where and how the organization can create the greatest long term value. And I think that long term is the real key word here, because um, a lot of people, whenever they buy a certain asset or something like that, they think very short term. They think, how can I make my money in the next year or next two years get, and get it back? And Charles is of the opinion of, let's see where we're going to go. Let's look at that 10, 20, 30. I mean, it's just exactly like Warren Buffett and all these other billionaires that we study and and research is they're always thinking very long-term value. And so that's where the vision that he has uh, really kind of comes into play. Stig, did you have anything else that you uh, pulled apart from that first tenant that he has of the five tenants with respect to vision?
3: Yeah. So I just have a a quote that I really loved about the book it was when Coke was saying that success is harder to overcome that adversity. And I thought that was really, really strong. So it's not like he mentioned any specific company, but what comes to mind is companies like Sears and Konak and Xerox, which has been hugely successful in the past, but they're not successful anymore because they haven't been able to adapt to the new times. And um, I really, really think that this quote, success is harder to overcome that adversity, was a really strong point in the book. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
1: Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Yep,
0: I I love that quote. It was, uh, you know, you see it so many times where these companies make a a lot of money. They start just hiring as many people as they can, not selecting the right people and being choosy. And their success actually becomes their their greatest setback because then they fill their ranks, they fill all the people within their organization at such a quick pace, and you know, it just it doesn't work out that way. They're not systematically slowly growing it in a conservative manner that uh, leads to more long term value. And I think that's really what he's uh, referring to with Stig's quote, and just in general with the vision tenet. So the next step that he has in this five-step MBM uh, process is virtue and talent. So that kind of goes to my point that I was just making. And you see this with a lot of billionaires, that hiring the right person is probably one of the most important things you can do as you're growing your business. And what you see is is when somebody comes out with a new product or service that's really successful, that, that does really well, has high margins... The first thing that a lot of managers and owners want to do is, well, let's expand the business. Let's grow it as fast as we can. And they just start hiring. And they start hiring the wrong people. And as soon as you hire one wrong person, guess what? That person then becomes a manager and they hire another five wrong people that are just like them. And so we, you see this trend with uh, Jeff Bezos specifically. I mean, he's emphatic about hiring the right people. Uh, Steve Jobs, if you've read Steve Jobs' book, emphatic about hiring the right people and so coke obviously has the exact same mindset as these other billionaires and that he would much rather sit on an empty seat and potentially forego revenues by not, by hiring the right person than to hire the wrong person and put them in there and and just it would act as a cancer to their organization so i think that this was a very uh, important point if you're a business owner entrepreneur uh something that you probably definitely want to consider is uh, do I really want to compromise growing too fast and having the wrong people in my organization? Or do I want to take it a little bit more conservative, put the right people in there and make good, solid decisions? Because that's the foundation of your organization. And I think that's what was the main point here.
3: Yeah. And I really, when, when I read the heading, it said virtue and talent. And I don't know if I'm really overanalyzing anything, but there's a reason why he put virtue before talent. And he's actually saying that it's much more important to have, a, um, to have a person with a lot of virtue and only a little talent uh, than the other way around. And one of the principles that he talks about in this chapter was that he wants his employees to think and act like an entrepreneur. And I thought that was a really good point because if you have employees that think and act like an entrepreneur, they think like, like the owner of the company, they don't think like employees. So they don't think that they should give away their time in exchange for money. They're thinking... As entrepreneurs, I said, which means that they can change everything that they want in the organization and an entrepreneur can grow and he can build and he can be visionary. And I thought that was such a strong, strong point. Yep. I, I love that point because so often do you go
0: to a restaurant or a store or something like that and you see a person thinking like an employee and not like an owner Um, for example, I was at the supermarket the other day and a person was setting up their cookie stand and I wanted to try the free sample of the cookie. Of course I did. Um, (laughs) So I asked the lady, hey, can I have a sample of that? And she said, I'm I'm not set up yet. Um, You're going to have to come back in five minutes. And her whole stand was set up. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't think like an owner. You think like an employee. And it wasn't to dig her. It was just, you could have made a sale, you know, if I tasted the cookie and I buy the whole thing. So that's a perfect example of a person who's thinking like an employee versus thinking like an owner. And that was what Charles Koch was saying in the book. It was, I want to hire people that think like owners. I want to hire people that think like entrepreneurs, because when you fill your ranks and your whole organization with people like that, I mean, you're just destined for success. Um, Another thing that I wanted to hit on real fast, which Stig brought up about the virtue being in front of the talent was um, Koch had this amazing quote in the book. And the quote went like this, employees with little virtue and lots of talent have done more harm to business than employees with great virtue and little talent.
3: So that's a great point. And I just keep thinking, Preston, did you go back and, you know, try the cookie? No, I did. <laughs> great point. So I was, I was, it was probably
0: because of uh, the fact that I always look at things from a business standpoint. I did not go back on purpose. Because I was like, that person's thinking like, a, like an employee, not a business owner. So I did not go back and, and taste the cookie. I like that question though, Stig.
3: Okay. So this just, uh, this just proved that he has a good point. <laughs>
0: Best question of the whole episode. All right. So let's go to the next thing. Um, the next point that he had, so we covered the first two of the five points. The, the third point that he had was knowledge and process. So I think this one goes without saying. When you look at a picture of Charles Koch, he's typically standing in front of a whole stack of books behind him, and uh, he greatly values education. And I think that that just goes without really putting too much emphasis on this one. I think everyone can just intuitively understand why that's important. The one thing that I would say that came out of this section that I found kind of interesting was that he uses the profit loss statement or his income statement as his metric and his key guide to determining how much value is a person actually creating for the process that they're managing. And so he starts off, he kind of looks at, okay, they bring in this on their top line. This is their bottom line. This is what they net. And that person created this much value for the company. And that's how he kind of determines and measures their worth, if you will. Um, so you obviously need good data in order to make good decisions. Uh, the other thing that he hit out in this specific point in the book was the idea of how much he puts emphasis on optimization and lean efforts. So um, a lot of people know the buzzword, Lean Six Sigma. That's something that I could see inherent throughout the entire book in the way that Charles Koch thinks. He's constantly thinking of ways how he can make things more efficient and get a better product out of that efficiency, opposed to you know more defects. So we, we're going to have a uh, link to a book um, in the executive summary that we type up for this, if you're interested in lean efforts, because that's actually a very important uh, aspect to just managing a business. And we could go for literally five to 10 episodes just talking about Lean Six Sigma and those kind of ideas, uh, but we have a link in, in the show notes, and we'll also have a link in our, execu- our five-page executive summary for
3: you to kind of review uh, that
0: type of idea and to explore that more.
3: What I liked about this chapter was that he was talking about accuracy and precision, which is actually not the same thing. So what he is saying is that you should have access to the right information. Uh, but he also says that you shouldn't be too detailed in your information. And I think that's a, that's a really good point because... You will see a lot of calculation. There might be calculation for a business, stocks, or whatever. And you will see that they will have like three, you know, ten dollars point three two seven eight something like that. I know I'm just over exaggerating here, but he's just saying you need to have access to the right data. You need to have access uh, to the right data and then you know, analyze on that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
1: dot com slash w s b that's all lowercase go to shopify dot com slash w s b now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in that's shopify dot com slash w s b
3: all right back to the show yeah don't over
0: process it is what he's saying you know the and that goes back to the lean six sigma that's one of the key tenets of that is don't over process something just come up with what's good enough. What, what do you desire? Like what's your outcome? What's your end state? What do you need? And get to that point and then move on, move to the next task, be, you know, be efficient with your time. So great point, Stig. Um, so we'll move to the, uh, fourth tenant of the five and that's decision rights. So this addresses the idea that the right people are in the right roles with the right authority to make decisions. So regardless of whether a leader takes responsibility or delegates responsibility for their decisions, they are still responsible for all their actions, regardless of what happens with what their subordinates do with those decisions that they've been given the authority to. Um, And I think that that's something that sets a culture within an organization that... You are responsible for the authority that you've been delegated. And when you have a culture that that embraces that and is used to that, you're going to see people taking ownership for their decisions and know that they're the person who's ultimately responsible for what's happening within their organization. Okay, so uh, let's hop to the uh, very last tenant that Charles uh, highlights out of the five, and that is incentives. Um, This is one that I really like to kind of talk about, because a lot of the times when you see people setting up a contract with another company and things like that, they always want to put incentives in the contract. And so I think incentives in general are a very good thing. But I think that one thing that a lot of people fail to recognize is why are you incentivizing something? Okay, now let me give you an example. Let's say that you need uh, somebody that you hired and you wanted to incentivize them in order to produce something at an accelerated timeline. Say that it probably would take two months to do it, but you need it in a month. So in order to get them to do it for you in a month, you're going to incentivize them. Okay, So you incentivize them through, through monetary incentives or whatever the incentive might be. So what a lot of people fail to realize is typically whenever you incentivize something there might be a cost, an intangible cost potentially with that incentive. So if I incentivize somebody to do something very quickly, the cost to that incentive could potentially be the quality of the product that they produce because they've done it in an accelerated environment. So it's very important to uh, understand that every time you put an incentive in place, there's sometimes a cost that's associated with that incentive. And that's just one little highlight that I wanted to, to point out. The other thing that, that Charles talks about specifically in the book is that he tries to find the ideal incentive that best motivates the individual employee. He does not like to put out blanket incentives. It doesn't work like that. And he's he's saying that if you really want to have a successful organization, you got to empower your leaders through those decision rights, which was the last tenant. To go out and understand your employee to the point where you know it incentivizes them. Some people are incentivized by money. Other people are incentivized by more leave in the year. Whatever it is, Coca is basically saying you need to tailor that and, and customize it to each person within your organization. And most importantly, whenever you do that, it needs to be incentive that's long-term value to the person, to the company, to society for the product that they're producing. And it was just a, it was a great Uh, Discussion that he had on what it is that's going to keep the right people within your organization, because that's what incentives really kind of do. That's keeping that knowledge base and keeping those quality people within your organization, but not doing it in excess. Okay. So uh, that's real briefly, those are the five tenets of market-based management, which is the style of leadership that Charles Koch implements uh, on a daily basis within his organization. And the key point that he summarizes at the very end of the book is that you can't implement these five tenets just step by step. You have to be uh, understanding that change piece. You got to be dynamic. You got to be willing to constantly reassess where am I at now and where am I going? So uh fantastic read. We thoroughly enjoyed it. So let's talk about uh, maybe something that you didn't like. So Stig, what was a piece in the book that you didn't really particularly care for?
3: Well, I got to say, when I, when I read the book and when I heard all his points, it was almost like sitting with a checklist in front of me. Because I was just saying like, check, check, good point, another good point, check. That was really, really amazing. I think all the he hit all the, the, the highlights there. I think if there was something that I should say was that the way of presenting it was a perhaps a bit odd from time to time. So just a word of caution, if you decide to read the book and really do recommend that you actually uh, dig into that book, it might be a bit dry here and there. And I think he has a minor in uh, philosophy. And I think that's is probably also something that you can uh, uh, that you can see in his book. He's very philosophical about a lot of these leadership things where I'm probably more the get-to-the-point kind of guy. Uh, he actually has the point, but it might take a might take a while here and there.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree with your point. I think that was probably the biggest... Um, I don't even want to say that it was a bad part of the book, but I think for some people that might not be as interested in business as maybe Stig and I are, um, I think you might find the book a little dry. It was... Um, you know, it was, it was probably a little hard to be excited to continue reading it where I, you know, I obviously read it like it was an action novel, but I'm a little geeky when it comes to uh, business books. So um, I think some people might find it a little dry.
3: Yeah. And just to give you an example, for, for instance, in the discussion about incentives, um, you know, for a guy like me, I'd probably like to know. So if I'm Charles Koch and I'm um, hiring a new person, how will my contract looks like? I mean, that's that's kind of the nitty gritty details I want to know but he was more into you know history part and philosophy so he said well so if we look at how the pilgrims came to America and then what happened I mean that was just his approach I mean (laughs) the mine was the same but he just got about it in in another way yeah
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, you know, I think he was really writing the book for his employees so that they kind of understand his mindset and that culture is really being bred within Coke Industries. So I think that was his primary audience was his employee base and then anybody else who's interested in knowing more about him. So uh, in general, though, I don't want to distract from the fact that I really kind of classify this book as probably one of the best books that I've read on business. So um, really enjoyed it. I highly recommend everyone goes out there and reads this. Um, if you don't have the time and you want to read our executive summary, our five-page executive summary, uh, make sure you sign up on our mailing list and we'll send it to you. Um, but at this time, let's go ahead and uh, play the question that we have from one of our audience members. And uh, this question comes from Trey Lockerbie.
4: Hey, my name is Trey. I'm a fan of that podcast and also the Buffett's Books website. I was looking into Apple, not Uh, a stock that Warren Buffett would buy, nor would I possibly. But just out of curiosity, I was running it through the intrinsic calculator. And I noticed that the intrinsic value was about 317. And the um, quote right now is only about 108. So I imagine that the intrinsic value is based off of the stock price before it split. So it would have been about 645, I think, right when it split. So I was wondering how to, um, you know, amend that so it would represent the most recent quote of the stock and i was also finding the same issue with rds point a um looks like i found an intrinsic value of 204 and the quote is only about 70 so i wanted to uh before i got really excited about finding things like that i wanted to make sure i'm not uh misrepresenting uh them via the uh split stock price all right thanks a lot
0: So, Trey, fantastic question. And this is something that Stig and I see quite a bit on the forum. Uh, People are asking, how do you value a company whenever you have a stock split? Um, I'll tell you this. So, we have two different intrinsic value calculators on Buffett's books. Uh, We have one that's based off of a model that uh, would be a similar way to valuing fixed income securities, which is bound by time. And that's the intrinsic value calculator that you'd see on Lesson 21. And then we have another calculator, uh, which is on Lesson 35 of Buffett's books, which calculates the intrinsic value using a discount cash flow model. And this one is not bound by time. This one uh, values the business into infinity. The main reason why we have the two different models really kind of comes down to a very obscure topic called look-through earnings, and that addresses the calculator, which we have on Lesson 21. So if you're valuing Berkshire Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway has what's called a lot of look-through earnings, and it's a accounting concept that would probably take me a couple episodes to describe the people. Uh, But to just make things really simple to answer your question, I'll tell you, I would use the calculator on Lesson 35 if you're dealing with a company that has recently had any type of stock splits, because uh, it's going to naturally take that into account by looking at the cash flow over the last 10 years, and then using the current number of outstanding shares in order to determine the value of the business. So, uh, without getting too technical and probably uh, hurting people's ears, we'll just kind of leave the answer to your question there. Um, if it's something that you want to discuss in more detail, I highly recommend that you go to our forum and talk to some of the people in the community there because they might be able to describe it in more detail. So, Trey, thanks for the uh, outstanding question. Stig and I will send you a free site copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And actually, in the book, it talks about that concept a little bit more in detail. So if you're interested in, in reading that portion of it, you'll find it in the book that we're going to send you. So, everybody, uh, if you're interested in reading our show notes, make sure that you go to uh, theinvestorspodcast.com. You can download the executive summary that Stig and I typed up about this book. Great having you uh, listen to us today. Keep the comments coming throughout the community because that's helping us develop a better product for you. So, really appreciate all of that. So, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
2: Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. D.I.B! D.I.B!